would love for you to open a Bible to 1 Peter. There should be one of those Bibles in front of you. Page 1293. We're walking through this letter written by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and he's writing to Christians who are experiencing hostility. Storm clouds are rising in the Roman Empire against the church, and the emperor, a guy named Nero, is becoming unhinged, growing suspicion around these odd people who worship a guy who was crucified by the Romans. These Christians are beginning to suffer financially, socially, even physically. And so Peter writes to encourage them. Now, part of the backdrop to this series, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, uh, by just about any measure, Christianity in the West is in decline. And Jesus' followers are increasingly finding themselves like strangers in their own land. And as you read through 1 Peter, you'll notice he uses this language to describe the church in the Roman Empire. They're like strangers, foreigners, refugees in their own land. Now, the caveat to this is that Christianity is growing outside the West in places like Africa, South America, and Asia, so that now... Two-thirds of the world's Christians live in the global south. And so this World Communion Sunday is a chance for us to remember and rejoice in all that God is doing in his global church. And what's uniquely beautiful about this expression of the church on University Boulevard is that right here under the same roof, we are blessed to worship alongside these two vibrant growing communities, our all nations and Mandarin congregations. And every once in a while, we just need to step back and thank God for the gift that we have of even this tiny glimpse of of, of what the kingdom of God really looks like and what heaven will one day look like when people of different cultures and backgrounds and tribes and languages and nations all come together under the banner of Jesus Christ. Earlier this week, I got to spend some time with Uh, Will Zhao. In fact, uh, Will Zhao is in the room this morning. He's singing in the choir in the first row. I'm not going to point. Will, did you just raise your hand? Okay. We're just going to go there. Let me tell you about Will. He came came here from China to study electrical engineering at SMU a few years ago. Do we have have any ponies here, by the way? I'm just going to check. Okay, so we've we've got a few. Congrats on your win against the 49ers. I had to look that up. But congratulations on that win. Will was an atheist who grew up in China thinking that Christians were weak and ignorant to believe what they believed. But while he was at SMU, he met some friends along the way that eventually invited him to this gathering of uh, a Mandarin community here at Highland Park. And he was curious because the Christians he met here weren't intellectually weak They weren't naive, they were kind, and they were different than what he had grown up hearing about. And over time, he found himself surprisingly drawn to the person of Jesus. And eventually, he gave his life to Jesus. He was baptized in the old 1105 service up in the third floor of the Hunt Building. And and through the years, he's become a core leader in our Mandarin church. He was fascinated by the Bible, loved to study the scriptures, and so he actually switched his education focus, uh, left electrical engineering behind, and he decided to get a PhD in Old Testament. That's like six years of studying Ugaritic and Assyrian dead languages. This is a smart guy. (laughs) 
And in recent months, he has increasingly sensed this call, and he has been sent out by our Mandarin congregation to help plant a new church in Richardson that is reaching the next generation. And as best we know, this is the first granddaughter church plant of Highland Park Press. Okay, isn't that kind of cool? And so on this World Communion Sunday, we celebrate that the church Jesus sent into the world was always meant to be a global church. So let me pause before we read our text uh, just to say a word of, of prayer and of thanksgiving. Lord, we are grateful for what you're building, this spiritual house you're building here on University Boulevard and, and beyond here to the very ends of the earth. Would you show us what it means to be one new community, one global family anchored in you? And now would you open our hearts and minds to be changed by your word? For the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Here's what we read. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second, but I want you to leave your Bible open. Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering because of their faith. He says, set your hope fully on this one thing. And the emphasis here is not on the feeling of hope, nor on the intensity of their hope, but the object, the direction of their hope. And what is the object of their hope? Verse 13, the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation, the return of Jesus Christ, which I don't know about you, but I got a little tripped up by this because I thought the hope would be in what Jesus has already accomplished and his rescuing us from sin and from death through his death on the cross. But that's not what Peter says here. He says, set your hope on his return when we experience the full and final expression of his grace. And it kind of dawned on me as I've been sitting with this text I don't spend a lot of time thinking about, let alone longing for Jesus to come back on Judgment Day. I mean, I can theologically agree, it's going to be a good day. It's going to be a great day. But my hope tends to be in the direction of what Jesus has already done for me on the cross. I tend to hope in what he's done and not on what he will do. But then you think about the people that Peter is writing to. These are people who are suffering. They're in the early stages of persecution, ramping up. It's getting hot in the Roman world, and, it, and it's a tinderbox about to go off. And, and they're, they're looking at the world around them and the pressure they're facing, and the walls are pressing in. You ask people who are persecuted, people who suffer, people who are <laughs> under the crush of injustice, which is the reality for many Christians in our world today. And if you ask them, is the final return of King Jesus to make all things right, to bring ultimate justice, to redeem his people, to wipe every tear from their eyes, is that a source of hope? You bet it is. Sisters and brothers, in your suffering, Paul writes, even in your trials, set your hope on the king who will come again to make all things right. And in just a few moments, we'll come to this table where not only will we give thanks for what Jesus has already accomplished, but we will long for 
and pray for his returning when he comes again. Peter goes on, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Then if you skip down to verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, and this is verse 1 of chapter 2. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it, you may grow into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the flow of this text, Peter starts out, set your hope on the return of Jesus. And as you do that, live holy, obedient lives. Be holy as God is holy. Now, we need to be careful with this. Peter is not saying, if you're holy, if you obey, Jesus will come again to save you. That's what religion says. If I obey, God will save me. If I'm holy then God will love me. The gospel announces, Jesus announces, because God has saved you, you can obey. Because God loves you, you are becoming, you will become holy. He's not saying to these Christians who've got their backs against the wall, if you want Jesus to come back and save you, you better make sure you remain holy the whole way through. No. Because you know that Jesus died for you, that he rose from the grave, and because of the hope you have in his promised return for you, in light of that, you can grow and mature into holiness even in the face of suffering. Well, then how do you know? How does one know that you're maturing and growing into holiness? What does becoming, like, becoming holy look like? Two things, Peter says and lays out here, two things. The first is this, verse 22. A sincere brotherly love. It's a deep love for others in the church. I love the King James here. Seeing ye, and that's not a reference to Kanye, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto, and here's the, here's the phrase, unfeigned love of the brethren. Who are the brethren? It's the people, men and women in the church. So how do you know you're growing in holiness? You find yourself having a sincere love for your brothers and sisters in the church. You might say, well, wait a second. Aren't we supposed to love everybody, especially those beyond the church? And you keep talking about that, Dunnigan. we got to love everybody outside the church. I mean, isn't this a little bit exclusive sounding? And I get that. And Jesus, more than anyone, revolutionized the way religious people extended love to those outside the church. But here Peter is describing that this is the evidence that you are becoming holy. It's unfeigned love for the brethren. What does he mean by that? Tim Keller has written about this, how before you become a Christian, 
Let's say you live in a big, diverse, cultured city like Dallas. Before you become a Christian, the way it mostly works is that among polite company, and this is just one example, but let's say you're a staunch conservative. Along the way, you have learned how to be courteous to those who you would describe as progressive liberals. But the truth is, you really don't get them. Like outwardly, you can be polite, but inwardly, you're kind of like, how can they believe in that stuff? There must be something wrong with them. Inwardly, you actually, you kind of disdain them. And the same could be true for other categories, other differences in culture or ethnicity or education. It's like you know, you've learned how to play the polite game and, and, and being courteous, respectful. You're going to teach your kids how to do this because it's just part of life and, and being in a big, diverse city. But then when you go and you get around your own kind of people, okay, the, the people who are pretty much just like you, that's, that's when you begin to trash the people who are different than you. That's when you start to uh, crack jokes about people who are different than you, or you can just freely talk about how you judge those bigots on the right, or how you own the libs, and just all the, it just starts coming out. This is where you let your hair down, and when your true colors come out. Again, we know how to put on a good face. We, we understand how this, the rules of engagement and, and, and public company, but at the end of the day, it's like, it's our tribe, our group, our family ties, our kind of people, that's what tends to win out. I've just gone from preaching to meddling, haven't I? <laughs> Here's what Peter says. The power of the gospel is that you, who once lived and thought that way, now you have sincere love for the brethren. That word sincere, it just means without a mask, without pretense, without putting on a good face. This, this is not polite company version of, of, of yourself. This is, this is your true self. And Peter says, when the gospel of grace grabs hold of you and begins to mature you, one of the first evidences of that is that you come into the church, you walk into the sanctuary, and you see all these people, many of whom are different than you, they look different than you, different skin color, different culture or class, or they're dressed differently. And you might even see somebody out of the corner of your eye whom you know, for whatever reason, you know is way on the other side of the aisle on cultural issues or important political issues. They could not be more different than you. And you see all these people who in the past you knew in, in polite company, you could just, you could be very courteous, but secretly you judged them and you disdained them and you left church going, how, how could they be here? And, and now suddenly you find yourself almost drawn to them. You have compassion for them, and, and, and it almost catches you off guard. You're like, what in the world? I didn't know I could love and care for that person. Is it really possible? That's the evidence of the revolution taking place in your heart. Great picture of this is in the book of Acts where God calls a guy named Ananias. In Acts chapter 9, God says to him, listen, Ananias, there's a, there's a brand new Christian, and I want you to go visit him and He's staying over on Straight Street, and his name is Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias says, um, Heavenly Father, I think you're talking about the wrong guy here, because Saul of Tarsus, if, if it's the Saul of Tarsus I'm thinking about, he's murdering Christians. Like, I don't think he's going to pass the ministry safe test. I'm not sure about this. Even if it is true that he has become a Christian, I don't want to be in church with him. 
And it's such a great moment because God says, no, Ananias, I'm, I'm not kidding around here. I want you to go to Saul of Tarsus. And so Ananias goes to Straight Street, and he walks into the house, and, and he, he, he places his hands on Saul, and this is what he says. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Spirit. Here's a guy hunting down, trying to kill Ananias' friends, and he says, Brother Saul, you're my brother. We're now family. Okay, that's only possible through a revolution of the heart. And that's the first evidence of growing into holiness. The second is this. How do we know we're growing into holiness? We become like babies. Which I know sounds a little off, but that's what Peter's saying here. When, when Jesus gets a hold of you and begins to mature you and grow you, you, you become like a baby. And if you're a baby, you need two things. I'm sure babies need more than this, but here's where Peter goes in 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2. First, if you're a baby, you need a family. Right? Babies cannot survive on their own, except for boss baby. For some reason, he's able to pull that off. I still haven't figured it out. But you can't, you can't put a baby in their own apartment in Uptown. Like, it's not going to... No, they need a family to care for them and love them and serve. Like, they can't survive without a family. When you become a Christian, you cannot grow alone. You cannot... Read scripture and study your way into spiritual growth without the love of a family. Which again is why love for the brethren, this revolution of the heart is so essential. So that's the first thing a baby needs, family. But then second, and this is where Paul wraps up this section of his letter. He says, if you're a baby, you need some milk. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And you know what that word spiritual is? It's, it's actually the word, word. Logikos, logos, word. Crave the milk of the word. And just so you know, the translation that gets this right is the King James. I don't know why. I've been on a King James kick lately, but here's, here's what it says. As newborn babies desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. It's, it's, the milk of, it's, it's the milk of God's word. Crave the sincere, pure word of God, not a watered-down, fake version. We don't water down the word in order to try and be relevant or seeker-friendly or uh, to try to make people feel comfortable. Or to tr We don't try and sweeten it with additives to make it more attractive. This is not a vanilla almond milk or oat milk or any other of the dozens of milk substitutes. Not that I have anything against fake milk, <laughs> which I've learned this week. There is such a thing as quinoa milk. I, nobody at the 930 had ever had quinoa milk. Is anybody on the quinoa milk train yet in this service? So in case you're looking for something really lovely for lunch today, you could ask for a side of quinoa milk. He says, crave the pure milk of, of the word. And when you're growing into holiness, what, happen, what happens is you, you begin to crave it, like you got to have it. 
When our twins were first born, there is so much about those first months that are completely foggy, but there are a few moments of, of, of clarity. I do remember, for example, every once in a while, mommy just needed a night off. And she would go out to dinner with some of her friends, and, and it was a kind of a followed a normal pattern. As she's walking out, she would always say to me, Brian, I promise I will, I will be back before the twins' next feeding time. And I'm like, I got this. Don't, I, this is a twin dad. I know what I'm doing. We're, we're, we're going to be fine here. And it goes, it's so much fun. It's going great. And they're not really mobile, but hour one, everything is good. And we're just kind of playing around a little bit. They're mostly just sitting there in the pods. Hour two, though, they start to get a little bit more anim animated. And we're playing and they're, you know, looking at the little Einstein thing and we're finding other stimuli. But then the clock starts ticking and getting closer to the appointed hour. And Annie and Wheeler just, I mean, they start rustling around a little bit more. There's more wiggles, more activity. They're falling off the pot, even though they can't even, like, really crawl yet. There's just, there's more interest in everything going on until that three-hour mark hits. And, I mean, it is off-the-chains energy. Like, now they're obsessed, and there is nothing that can get them distracted from their obsession. They're not just marginally interested in what only mommy can provide. They are craving it is the only thing they can think about. It is all-consuming. And, and every, when she, she can open the door and not even having taken a single step, and it's like into the house, into the kitchen, and they would run after her and tackle her if they could run right then and there in that moment. And that's as far as we're going to go with the illustration, but you get the picture here, right? <laughs> Peter says, when you're growing into holiness, you're like a newborn infant craving God's word, which... The beauty of that metaphor is that moments earlier, Peter says, you've been born again. You're like newborn, newborns in Christ, and you should crave spiritual food, right? When a baby isn't hungry, we get worried. When Jesus comes into your life, you begin to, to crave the word of God. And again, this, to be clear, is not, you're not earning anything in your craving of God's word. It's all grace, but grace Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning, but not to effort, Dallas Willard would often say. Craving the word of God, it's not earning me the spiritual growth, but when done in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, who alone can grow you from the inside out, that's, that's what forms us. So as we close, I want to take a moment just to get practical, and then we'll come to the table. If you're going to crave the Word of God consistently in your life, you need three things. You need a time, a place, and a plan. So first, find a consistent time. And it doesn't really matter when. This is not morning people versus night owls kind of thing. The key is consistency. If you don't schedule it, and I don't think this is only true for me, but if you're not committed enough to put it on the schedule, then it's not likely to happen consistently. Now, for me, the morning seems to work the best because, because I'm doing it before I do anything else. It's the first thing I get to. Nothing else is going to hijack my time in God's Word, even, even if it's just for a few minutes. So decide on the time. And then second, find a consistent place. Your favorite chair or your favorite coffee shop or your favorite room in the house, which for us is the room with the least amount of plastic toys just everywhere in the house. Again, the name of the game is just, it's consistency, a time, a place, 
and then, and then find and follow a plan. If you don't have a plan or a guide and you're just going at it random and you're opening up to whatever passage, it's, it's harder to stick with it. The plan gives you consistency. It helps you to engage in the story. And just a little teaser, I shared this at 9.30. We're planning to walk through the entire Bible next year as a church, from Genesis to Revelation, in our preaching series. And, and we want, we're going to invite everybody to be on the same plan, reading through the entire Bible in one year. And we're going to line up the sermons and, and everything we do as a church around that. Now, if you don't have a structured plan, we have Bible reading guides that, that are available all around the church, and they give you a few readings every day. You, you, you can do one, two, you can do all of them. Whether you read it, or maybe for some of you, it's helpful to listen to it. I found recently that listening to the Bible is a great way to, to get into more of the Word or so that the Word, more of the Word can get into me. You can download the Bible app on your phone. You can listen your way through the Bible maybe while you're walking or uh, even driving to work or school. And then this, th this is key. Don't beat yourself up if you get out of your routine. And maybe some of you have fallen out of that practice that you once had. You got busy, you got distracted, your kids are on eight different sports teams. I get it. No guilt. Don't let guilt keep you from getting back into it. This week I had lunch with a guy in our church, and, and he told me how Years ago, he was challenged, he was encouraged by his Sunday school teacher at the time, a guy named Clyde Jackson. And Clyde challenged uh, the class to start reading the Bible consistently every single day. And, and so he and his wife, they started, this, they started a, a Bible reading plan together for the first, really for the first time in their life. And he went on to say during our lunch, he said, nothing has changed my life transform my attitude, my heart, my character, the way I raise my kids, how I treat people, and how I went about my work life. Nothing has shaped me more than consistent time in God's Word. Because see, what happens over time, if you're consistent like that, you crave it even more. You almost can't not skip a day without you notice it. Wow, I'm kind of hungry for God's word, and I didn't get it today, and I know I need it. And so tomorrow morning, and this isn't about guilt, but tomorrow morning, I am not going to let anything crowd out my time in God's word. So, brothers and sisters, as you set your hope fully on the one who gave his life for you, who washed you clean by his blood poured out as he matures you into holiness to love one another and like newborn children being drawn into the family where together we crave his living and enduring word. May we meet in the word of the Lord, the Lord of the word, the one who invites us to his table right now. I want to invite pastors Ben and Pastor Simon to come and lead us through these words of institution together. Brothers and sisters, today is World Holy Communion Sunday. We will join the Universal Church to remember our Lord. At the same time, we should know we are all remembered by the Lord. Therefore, all of us are invited to the table to confess our sins.
to lay down our burdens, refresh our spirit, and accept the gifts of God for His people. Today, I will speak Mandarin, and Simon will speak Swahili yes. to improve your oral Chinese and Swahili. <laughs> Good luck. But we are sure you will understand what we will say, yeah. because we have only one Lord, one body, one face to practice every day. Tang in other words, he says, after they had eaten, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the cup of new covenant in my blood that is shed for you. And so every time you need to take this bread and receive this cup, you proclaim the Lord's saving death until he comes. And we know we are confident he will come again. And that is our hope we look forward to. And so this, this morning, we're going to invite you to come. Uh, to the stations that are all allowed, and uh, I just will guide you over there. And for the first time, we do have, as Brian mentioned earlier, uh, those uh, families and their students who went to uh, the class this morning, and they will be receiving on this World Communion Sunday for the first time. Uh, what a joy to be able to invite them to come with us. And so, my friends, here are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come and receive. So you receive a, a wafer, and then you dip it in a cup, and then you receive. And then we'll follow right now as we go. Come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen. Amen.